Great, thank you. Well, we're going to look at our, our passage tonight. We're in Mark chapter 12, and actually I've asked Elise if you wouldn't mind reading still for us. Um, so Mark chapter 12, and we're just going to read the, the first 12 verses, the parable there. So thanks, Elise. Over to you. Mark chapter 12. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. They had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvellous in our eyes. Then they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid. So they left him and went away. Great. Thank you very much. Let me set this talk up uh, just with a question for all of us. What do you think makes more sense? Heaven or hell? If you asked your neighbour, what would they say, do you think, to that question? Heaven or hell? Which one is more reasonable or or makes more sense, do you think? I think many people may be very happy to believe in, in the idea of a, a heaven. You know, we all long for something better, for the perfect, you know, for, for rest, for, for paradise. But I I think far fewer people think that, that hell is very fair. And it doesn't seem to make sense, perhaps, to many people. You know, if God is, a, if he's a God of love, why is there a hell? It's a question that I hope our parable might touch on, actually, in a moment. Which one makes more sense? So just hold on to those thoughts in, in your own minds for now. This is a, a parable, and, and Jesus loves to use parables in his teaching. But they always come with a warning. You see, they will do one of two things to you. It will either teach you something and bring you you closer to God, or it will harden you and may even cause you to move further away from God. They are powerful stories, and they can have wonderful or disastrous consequences. So let's be open tonight, each one of us, to what God may be saying to us, particularly, I think, as it echoes much of what we saw this morning in Psalm 50 with Phil. And so there are, there are four people in our story. There's a, a man and his son, 
And then there are the tenants and the servants. And who are they all or what do they, what do they represent? Well, I think it's quite clear when you look at the, the big story of the Bible, you can see that, that God is like the man who planted a vineyard. And so if you were to look at Isaiah in chapter five, the words, they're almost identical to this parable where God, the, the creator of the universe, you know, he's your maker, he's, he's mine. He's the one who owns every land and creature. Isaiah says that he built a vineyard. That's picture language. That is, he established Israel to be his special possession. They were his vineyard. He took one childless couple and he made them into a, a nation of people that couldn't be counted. And he gave them a land, a promise, a, a special covenant relationship. And he came to live with them in the tabernacle. And he spoke to them through people like Moses and other prophets. And he, he said, do this and live. Now follow me and be blessed. Trust in me alone and you will have all you could ever need. And he did protect them. He provided for them. He made them a prosperous people. But the tenants of the land, they didn't give what was rightfully God's to God. See, they were never the owners of all that they enjoyed. And they were just tenants living in the vineyard. It wasn't theirs. And they needed to give some of the harvest to the one who owned the land in the picture. But they didn't want to. Now, our story doesn't tell us why. It just says that it was their duty. They owed God some of the fruit, but they didn't give him any. And, so, and that's the setup of our story. It's quite simple in one sense. The God who created all things set up his people in a land and, and asked for some of the fruit from them. So what do we learn from this first scene in our story? Well, it's spoken to Israel's leaders in particular. They, as the role models and the, the shepherds of the people, they had failed to honour God with their life, you know, with the fruit that their lives produced. And, and while this parable, it, it was a specific indictment on them, I think there are principles that, that can be broadened to all of us with all the many blessings that, that God has given us here today in 2020 in the UK. So I wonder, do, do you ever think, well, you know, this is my body. This is my life. This is my money. This is my house. These are my kids. These are my possessions. This is my time. I don't owe anybody anything. I've worked for this. This is my right. I, I don't owe you or or the church, or God, or, or anyone. It's mine. I, I think it might be you know, quite a common thought, maybe not put quite so starkly, but we feel that, that we deserve certain things in life. You know, that's our right to be able to enjoy the best life that we can, or to enjoy the things that we have acquired over our lives. But you see, God, he cares deeply about how we live. So we're not saved just to go on living as we please. We have been rescued out of darkness to live in the light, in God's kingdom. And so we must live as people of the light, people producing fruit, giving back to God what belongs to him. And so everything in this vineyard is a gift. All that we have is because God has given it to us. This universe, it's his. We read this morning in, in Psalm 50 that the cattle on a thousand hills, that they're God's, everything is him. Along with your house, your car, your bank balance, 
the food in your fridge, your job, your children, your time, your gifts, your abilities, your work, your leisure, your dreams, your aspirations. It's all God's. And so verse one of the story, it says that a man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it. He dug the pit. He built the watchtower. Then he rented it to some farmers and moved to another place. For he, that's God in our story. He created everything, every good thing in this, in this world. All things are his. We're, we're just living here. So let me ask you this. What are you holding on to? that maybe you need to let go of. Maybe it's a, a, some dream, some great plan for your future. Maybe it's a relationship you know, you've always longed for, some prized possession. Maybe it's just control of your circumstances. Maybe it's your money. For many right now, this may be a very difficult time. And you, maybe your income is dried up. That mortgage holiday is coming to an end. The overdraft, that the limit, It's a real worry for many how they're going to cope next month. And so it's tempting to to not give to God what's God's. To hold on to everything, my money included. I mean, surely he wants me to look after my family, doesn't he? I need to pay the bills first, surely, before I can give to anything of God's work. But the wisdom of the Bible, you know, what God calls each of us to do is to trust him and to obey to let go, to enjoy all that we have with with open hands, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and that is doing what is right. And then all these things will be added to you as well, it says in Matthew. As a kid, one of my brothers and I, we had very different temperaments. And whenever we received sweets or something nice to eat, we were encouraged to share it with one another. Now, I love sweet things, and I still do. And so I would always want to grab the biggest piece for myself first. But my brother, he, he shamed me. He was a very other-focused, and he would always happily let others choose first, whereas I would, I would selfishly hold on to things with, you know, with tight fists. Well, the tenants in our story, similarly, they didn't consider the God who had given them everything to begin with, and, and they held on to things that rather than just giving to God and, and, and living a life of, of worship, of producing fruit in every area. The picture is actually very dark. Verses 3, 4, and 5, they paint a picture of what becomes of a heart that, that puts yourself first and not God. And so God sends servants to collect the fruit, to remind them of their duty to God. And, and all through Scripture, the the judges, the prophets, the godly kings, they've called on God's people to trust him alone and to give the harvest to God, to bear fruit for him. And, and that's not just the fruit of giving, you know, maybe a tithe or whatever part we earn, but it's the fruit of righteousness, godly living in every area of our life. True religion, we're told in James 1, is to look after orphans and widows and their distress, to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's the fruit that our Father accepts as pure and faultless. And so God's servants, the prophets, the preachers, they came again and again to remind the people to produce the fruit that they owed God. But what do their hard hearts do? Well, the tenants, they seize the servant. They beat him. They sent him packing. 
The next one, it says in the story, they, they gave him brain damage. They shamed him. Then they resort to murder. We don't want to listen to God. I don't owe him anything, they say. And so one small act of rebellion, it leads to a bigger one, which leads to a, to a hardened heart and a seared conscience. And that leads to even worse atrocities, becoming serial killers, greedy, self-righteous. They reject God and they deny that he has any claim on them or the vineyard that they live in. It's a frightening picture. And, and I, well, I'd never do that, you say. Well, most notorious criminals, they never start with the heinous crime that they're arrested for. It always starts with some one small act of defiance or omission. That wasn't so bad. And when there seem to be no consequences, you know, there's a very slippery slope to where they end up. And so the man in our story then sends his son, God the Father, he sends Jesus into the world to collect his fruit, to call on the people to produce the fruit of righteousness that we owe him. But in verse 7, the tenants in their stone-hearted delusion, they say to one another, this is the heir, come let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And so they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. This is the story of the world from the perspective of God. You know, how would you respond if someone murdered your beloved child, your son, your heir, the one who carries your name? I mean, just, just fathom that for a moment. Someone's done evil against you for years. Now, they've rebelled against you. They've stolen from you. They've taken advantage of you. They've ignored you. They've harassed you. They've talked evil against you. And people you've sent to try to work it out with them, they were harassed, they were beaten, even murdered. And then you send, as a final act of love, your son, and the one you love the most. And you think, well, they'll respect him, but they murder him. Just fathom that. that. This is our story, the story of the world of humanity's relationship with God. Now, I can't imagine what that would be like as a father. You know, I love my kids so much. I would protect them from anyone. And if someone harmed my child or did some evil towards them, I would want justice. Like an angry bear protecting his cubs is an instinct in us. But I'm just an imperfect father. I may not always respond rightly. But we still, we, we know, don't we, when a, a wrong needs to be righted, justice needs to be done. And what these tenants do in our story, it, it's outrageous. But then it's humbling when we realize that we may be just like them. You see, this parable, it says that, that he is slow to anger. The wick on, on his dynamite of judgment, it burns for thousands of years. He is patiently waiting, continually pursuing. He's lovingly enduring all kinds of mockery and rebellion. Our God is remarkable. I try to think of a word that, that could best describe his love, you know, his patience with us. And, and just none do it justice. He is indescribable how he waits and delays his judgment year after year, century after century. Because the way we treat our creator, it's not just shameful, it's, it's inexcusable. And if this were just a story about a man and his vineyard, well, we wouldn't be surprised at what the owner does in verse 9. It says, 
he will come and kill those tenants, and he'll give the vineyard to others. Of course he would. Who would put up with such violent, reprehensible, rebellious people in their life? Who not only kill your servants, but your very son. Justice must be done. But then we realize that this isn't just a story about a man and his grapevine. This is the reality of Yahweh, the almighty creator of the universe. And his vineyard is the very planet that that you and I live on. And that should have put a lump in your throat. And, And you see, this is where hell makes perfect sense. I asked you at the beginning, what what makes more sense, heaven or hell? A lot of people, they don't like the idea of hell, of judgment. They don't understand why God would create a burning lake of fire for his enemies. Well, I don't understand heaven. Hell, that makes perfect sense. You see, you hate God, you rebel against him, even after he gives you every blessing in your life. You, know, you oppose his messengers for thousands of years and you murder his son. And that's not going to go well for you. you know, God is not happy about that. He, he can't just turn a blind eye to your treachery. You oppose God. That has a bad ending. And that should be obvious, right? It's no surprise. It does make sense. People think we can enjoy all the common blessings of life and give no regard for our maker. And that we can reject his word and his people and then end up in heaven. No, you pick a fight with God, you're going to lose. You should see that coming. Hell is not a surprise. You keep fighting God. That's the prison that you go to forever. But maybe some think, I just can't believe that. I can't believe God would punish people. Isn't he meant to be loving? Well, what would you do? What would you do if you were God? And the people that treated your vineyard and your servants and in your beloved son like they did in the story, what would you do? You can't just criticize God. You need a better plan. What would you do if you made the universe, this beautiful world that we live in? And if you gave humans life, your spirit, creativity, your very image, and they rebel against you. And starting all the way back with Cain killing Abel, every time you sent someone to help them and, and to tell them the truth, that God's not a tame lion. No, he's good, but there is a cost to following him. That they, they fought them, they opposed them, they persecuted them, they, they exiled them, they murdered them. And still you're patient for thousands and thousands of years and you keep sending people to your vineyard, telling them what you're like, that you're loving, that you're patient, that you're full of mercy. If only they would trust you, that all would be well. You know, you want to help them, you want to rescue them from their sin. And so you send your son to show them exactly what you're like, the son whom you love more than anything else, and they murder him. What would you do? Well, God's answer is justice. God's answer is judgment. God's answer is that you need to figure out what you're going to do with my son. We are all wicked tenants. Hell, it's not surprising. But I'll tell you what is heaven. You see, the death of God's son, it wasn't an accident. It was the perfect sacrifice that endured the hell that we deserve. And it gives us heaven in its place. Now, that doesn't make sense. That is the most majestic 
act of salvation. Now, the pure and the righteous one giving himself for us filthy rebels. Heaven doesn't make sense, but but I'm so glad that God's in the business of doing things his way and not ours. That is a mystery. That ought to make us worship him in wonder and adoration. And so Israel's leaders, they rejected their Messiah. They didn't produce the fruit that they owed him. But as verse 10 says, he, that's Jesus, he has now become the cornerstone. They rejected him, they murdered him, but on him, God has built a new creation, a new people. And this is what the Lord has done, it says, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Can you say amen to that? This, is this story not marvelous? Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation. And he's the first brick in any construction, the stone that every other one gets its reference from. And so the wonder of the good news is that the Son of God, who humanity rebelliously murdered in what we thought was some final act of defiance and, and liberty, he has actually been raised to life. And, and he has become the foundation on which God is building a new humanity. He is the cornerstone of his kingdom. And by submitting your life to this king, we are welcomed freely into the kingdom of God. And so as we close, let me just ask you what your response is to this cornerstone. What are you going to do with God's son? Are there aspects of your life where maybe I'm living like a wicked tenant still? No, it's my body, it's my money, it's my life. No, it's not. It all belongs to him. And we're going to have to give an account for all that we have in this life. Are you producing fruit and the fruit of righteousness? James will tell us that the faith, that faith without works is dead. If your life is no different to it was before you were saved, if it's no different to your neighbors who, who don't trust in Jesus, well, that should set off a warning bell. In our heads, John the Baptist, a great prophet, he he pleaded with these same religious leaders in Matthew 3. And he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. But they ignored him, too. And he, too, was killed. One of the many. I wonder if there are any ways in my life where we like these tenants. I reject God's messengers. And as God speaks his word to us by the power of the Holy Spirit, through his people, maybe I don't like it. No, I fight it because I don't want to submit to God in this area of my life. Maybe God's word seems too hard for me. I'd rather write it in my own image. This is a disease that is prevalent in our culture, rewriting the hard bits of God's word that we would rather weren't there. What's God saying to you tonight? you need to listen to you know what his word says we need to let god be god the owner of the vineyard the definer of truth so we must build our lives on this cornerstone and there can only be one foundation any other effort will mean that the building doesn't go straight and it will only end in disaster it will collapse the words of of 1 peter 2 say this It says, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone. 
and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, well, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, it says, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of his darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the cornerstone that each of us must build our lives on. So let me pray for each one of us now. Our Father God, we thank you for your word to us tonight. We thank you for this parable that teaches us not just what we are like, but what you are like, a patient and loving God who has done all you can to bring us out of the darkness and into your wonderful light. And so we thank you for the Lord Jesus, the cornerstone that you are building your church on, this new kingdom, your kingdom, of a people who are made to bring you praise in every area of our life. So I pray that each of us would would produce fruit in keeping with repentance as we claim to follow you, that our lives would show that in every area, that we would submit to you as the cornerstone, as the foundation of our life, that we would call you the Lord of every part of our life. Our Lord, forgive us. Forgive us when we are proud, when we hold on to things that are rightfully yours. Our Lord, forgive us when we want to do things our way and not yours. Please humble each one of us so that we might live rightly before you and so enjoy peace and relationship and a a future forever with you in your glorious new creation. So, Father, thank you for your word. May your spirit speak to each one of us powerfully tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.